Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode of Eco Chic is brought to you by Aspiration, the environmentally friendly debit card. Did you know you could get up to 10% cash back at environmentally friendly partners and access up to 20 times the interest of a traditional bank? Go to aspiration.com slash eco for more, and you can get up to $200 when you open an account. Aspiration.com slash eco. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. So good to have you here. We are having a book club episode today. I'm really excited because last month's pick was the Bill Gates book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. And this was a book that got a lot of heat online and was a little bit of a controversial pick coming from the climate community. So I'm really excited that we got to read it. And we read this month with my friend Zara Biabani from the account Soulful Seeds. Zara is a blogger in the sustainable fashion and lifestyle space, and she is a recent graduate of Vanderbilt University. Congratulations, Zara. She graduated last week, and her degrees are in environmental sociology and earth and environmental science. So she is also someone that I met through a mutual friend that hopefully y'all know if you are in the sustainability space, and that is Isaias Hernandez of Queer Brown Vegan. Our friend Isaias introduced us because he and Zara We're actually co-hosting a climate justice clubhouse club, I suppose, a clubhouse club, and introduced me to Zara, and we just really hit it off. We talk every week, and now I feel like she's one of my closest friends on the internet, and I've never had her on the show before, so I thought that this would be an excellent opportunity for us to chat and do something a little bit more casual, especially because Zara talks so much about climate justice, and upon the release of this book, there was a lot of pushback from the climate community online because there wasn't more of a climate justice component to the book. So I thought that Zara would be the perfect person to read this book with because we could read it really critically. She is also formally educated in the space in a classroom setting, so she has this background in climate solutions that we were able to really pick apart and appreciate. 
And I think we had a really great conversation, if I do say so myself, just because there is a lot of merit in the book. I actually really enjoyed it, and I feel a little guilty saying that because there was so much pushback online from this community. So we really pick it apart. Zara and I highlight what we liked about the book, what we didn't like, what was missing, what could have been explained a little bit better. But at the end of the day, it is a climate crisis manual, so to speak, for the general public. And we really took that with a grain of salt, and I really liked it. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, attaching more and more big names and big investors to the climate crisis can only be helpful. And I say this in our conversation today, and I say this quite often on this show, it's similar to veganism. I really don't care if you go vegan because it's a trendy thing or if it's for the animals or if it's for the environment. All that matters is that everyone is doing a little bit. So however you got here... That's great. And the same thing with the climate crisis, the same thing with investors. I don't really care what the motivations are for advocating for climate solutions as long as we are all on the quote unquote right side of this crisis. So with that, I'm excited to chat and I'm excited to share this episode with you. Book Club, if you've never joined us before, is a chatty once a month bonus episode here on Eco Chic. We have been reading nonfiction books so far. It's not a review. We read together as a community and then have a lighthearted, casual discussion at the end of the month with a friend from the community. And then we can all just chat about it online afterwards. And you can do that with me on social at Eco Chic Podcast. Next month's book club pick is actually a fiction book. We will be reading Migrations by Charlotte McConney, and we will be reading with Jessica Clifton from the account Impact for Good. So I'm excited to read that one because it was a book that received a lot of attention last year, and it also happens to be a climate fiction book. So it kind of seems like the best of both worlds. If you were waiting for a novel for book club, here it is. I think that we will all enjoy it. I will have that listed and linked in the show notes as well if you want to check it out. Book Club was really started as a way to get us all reading a little bit more because I know everyone has that goal in the back pocket. If you are not a reader yet, it's nice to become a reader. But if you have no interest in becoming a reader, the nice thing is you can still listen to these discussions and enjoy and hopefully take something valuable home with you. As always, there is no pre-written questions. There's no like formal structure to these episodes. And I think that allows us to be quite fluid in our discussion and be quite open and honest. So I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. I want to know what you thought of the book, again, because it was such a high-profile read for the general public, but also such a point of discussion for the sustainability community in itself. And while the book was a hot topic this early quarter of 2021, there is also now a lot of news circling about Bill Gates, so we are putting that aside for now. This conversation was recorded last week. If you're here because you were just searching up podcasts talking about Bill Gates, welcome to Eco Chic, the eco-conscious lifestyle podcast. I hope you stick around, and if you want to, you can follow on Spotify, you can rate and review and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, and find me wherever you listen to podcasts every week. Uh, But with that, I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. We talk a lot about climate solutions. We talk a lot about food, access, energy poverty, and we talk a lot about what we would like to see from the larger investment community in the climate crisis. We talk about geoengineering, which I actually never talk about here on the show, and I explain my feelings on it. Zara explains her feelings on it. And it's a lot of fun to be able to dig into these more nuanced side conversations of the climate crisis with someone that I admire and enjoy so much. So overall, we cover a lot of ground. It's a really fascinating read. If you have not picked it up yet, I've got to say, 
I recommend it. We do rate it at the end of the episode and I would love to hear what you rate it and what you thought of the book. If you have gotten a chance to read it and if you have not, read it, listen to this episode. That's the best part about book club. You don't have to do it with us. You could always pick up the book afterwards. It's never too late to join and then listen to the conversation and give me your feedback. And like I said earlier, you can connect with me on Instagram at Eco Chic Podcast and also on Facebook and Twitter and Clubhouse where I'm always hanging out. All of those links are in the show notes. And with that, I hope you really enjoyed today's conversation with Zara Bibani of Soulful Seeds. We're chatting about how to avoid a climate disaster by Bill Gates. Enjoy. Zara, welcome to the show. I can't believe I've never had you on. I'm so thrilled to have you here today talking about this book. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me, Laura. I would love to first open up with your initial thoughts before reading this book when you heard that Bill Gates was coming out with a book about climate change. What was your gut reaction? Did you want to read it? Did you not want to read it? Did you feel like he had any place to be writing this book? Like what was the... What was the atmosphere for you? Yeah, I initially was like, you know, very much hesitant to engage with it because I was like, why is he writing about this as as like a a software engineer now, like investor, billionaire? Um, Like what, you know, what is his motivation and like, what is his background? Because I know that, you know, even with the Gates Foundation is primarily focused on like global health. Um, so I was like, is it going to be tied to that? Or like, like, what is, what is the goal? And I also know he's like a huge investor in a lot of different climate tech initiatives. So I didn't know if it was going to be like directed towards like investing in the climate or like, you know, simply like the opportunity to make, um, money off of, you know, climate tech. So I, I definitely was very hesitant, especially when I heard, I, I got reached out to for like a free copy, but never like a paid sponsorship. But like a, a lot of other influencers also like got um, emails saying like, oh, we would love for you to promote this book for free <laughs> just for like a copy of the book, which everyone found really weird because like, first of all, they have so much money. Like they should be paying people if they want to promote it. Second, like this does not need to be promoted like <laughs> versus like any other book written about climate crisis. I feel like he has a huge platform and people would just flock to it anyways. So those were my initial thoughts, I guess. What about, what about you? Yeah, that's fair. I did have a little hesitancy with even picking this as the book club pick for the month, but it got so much press and I felt like everyone in my life outside of the immediate like climate sustainability community was asking me about it. And I think that maybe you feel the same way. There's not really like all that many people that are actively working in the climate space or like engaged with the climate space as much as we talk about it. It's still kind of like a niche interest and it's a little bit of a fringe of society type profession. You know, it's not like nursing, like it's not like nearly as common for people. So when there is any sort of climate news, I feel like my family members, especially, or like family friends or like people who are not um, as deep into it as me will say like, what do you think of this? And so I mm-hmm. was pretty, I, I was pretty excited to read it just because it's a big name to mm-hmm. have attached the climate crisis. Bill Gates is yeah. a man with a lot of influence and he's, yeah. I mean, he's a white man that other white men love, frankly. And I think of Bill mm-hmm. Gates as like, you know, last the last decades, Elon Musk, like people love yeah. Bill Gates. 
And Mm -hmm. I actually, I think I really like him. Like I really like him and I really like his wife or I guess like his soon to be Mm ex-wife, but I like the work that they do with their foundation. Like I like their global health initiatives. I think they do a pretty good job of making sure that um, when they build schools in other countries, that it's like a culturally appropriate, you know, teaching facility. And I think they, I think they do a really good job. And I feel like at the end of the day, like no one's in this, no one gets into global health for like malicious reasons. Like you do it because you right. have money and you like actually care about it. So right. I generally speaking as a citizen of America, I like Bill Gates. Um, but I really don't I agree. Want to, yeah. I didn't really want to read this book because there was so much negative energy from it from the climate space. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I felt very like called out almost for like wanting to like even just engage with it once I learned about like what it is actually about and how it is written for like the general public um because then I was like I want to see you know like how accessible this information is being made by this like incredibly smart man who has so so much and and so many resources but no I agree I, I think there are a lot of people super hesitant just because he's a billionaire and I mean regardless of whether or not I think billionaires should exist like he he I think he's doing the best (laughs) like he's doing a lot with the money and the resources that he has he has done so much him and his wife for soon to be ex-wife for like fighting malaria and through the gates foundation they have done so incredibly much so i think like that is something to be noted and it it's something that's unique about them so that i definitely have more trust for him and his intentions i guess because of that still i i you know was hesitant about like how much is going to be about investing. I know he's also like the largest holder of agricultural land, which is like really, really weird. Um, That's nuts. (laughs) Yeah. I've never heard that. That's nuts. Yeah. He's investing in a lot of like carbon sequestration, carbon credits that uh, farmers basically can partake in by either, you know, doing crop rotation or uh, like no-till all these different methods. And basically if you're an investor and you engage in that, it's like, it's pretty profitable now because of the carbon markets. Um, But yeah, let me pull up the fact about America's largest private farmland owner. That's so crazy. Interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. And I think you're right in saying like, he's clearly doing the best he can from a private citizen perspective. Like not that I know anything about him, you know, day to day outside of the general public, but if it was Jeff Bezos writing a climate book, I was like, I, you know, that would be very upsetting, but Bill Gates writing a climate book, like he's, he's a smart guy. Like I trust him. I don't know. There's something about, I was like, you know, I want to, I want to participate in this. And I think the fact that it was a big name attached to a publication written for the general public makes a huge difference because there are quite a few climate books. There's plenty of sustainability books and there's a lot of books around urgency in the climate crisis. I'm thinking Mm -hmm. like Naomi Klein, Mm -hmm. like those books exist and there wasn't necessarily a need for another climate book for the climate population or the climate community. And Mm. the idea that this was written for the general public, I think really shows in the way that it was written. I found it incredibly easy to read. Like it was so, yeah, what's the word I'm looking for? Like tactile almost like really strategic mm-hmm. where it was like, all right, why do government policies work? All right. What is a green yeah. premium? And it read a yes, little bit like yeah. a vocab lesson at some points, but even the examples he used, like he used pretty yeah. easy to understand examples of like, 
here's a project going on in Europe. It's taken 10 years because of X, Y, and Z. You know, I thought like, Mm -hmm. I really understood why it was written the way it was. Quick break to tell you about my latest conscious consumerism hack, and that's Aspiration, an environmentally friendly online way to manage my money. I am no longer a slave to the big banks, and I gotta say I am so thankful because when I realized that my bank was investing in the fossil fuel industry, putting my money towards things that I totally do not want to invest in, like fracking, like funding pipeline projects that I'm morally opposed to, all of these gross, nasty activities that big banks are constantly funding, I was just like, I've got to get my money out of there. And if I'm going to be spending money and if I'm going to be banking anywhere, I want to make sure it's somewhere that is not directly investing in anything contributing to global warming. And that's where I found Aspiration. Aspiration will never use your money to fund fossil fuels. You can even plant a tree with every purchase with your spare change. You can get up to 10% cash back and environmentally friendly partners, which I really appreciate because my latest is buying active wear sets from the Girlfriend Collective and they're one of the partners with Aspiration. I appreciate that I can get a little cash back because then it feels like not only am I buying into a business that I really appreciate their quality and their clothing and I'm all about the ethics behind the brand, but then I also know that the way that my money is being used is ethical and safe and totally in line with who I want to be as a consumer. I also really like that I can access more interest than my traditional bank would allow me to previously. It's actually up to 20 times the interest of a traditional bank when you're using Aspiration. And the very best part, Aspiration is offering eco-chic listeners up to $200 when you open an account at aspiration.com eco. Learn details when you sign up for a better world at aspiration.com eco. Now back to the show. Yeah, and I also really like that there was no, I mean, chapter 12 is, you know, like what each of us can do and as citizens and as consumers and employees, but the majority of the book was not focused on individual action or consumer blame um, at all. Like, in fact, I I really do appreciate how he um, made it clear that for, you know, emerging economies so like India and China um they you know in order to grow their economies like the U.S. has and Western countries have you need to I mean in the current model they have they have to admit more um and how it's unfair for us to say as people or as you know citizens of a country that has already benefited from emissions to like reach that threshold of economic growth to say that oh y'all just are gonna stay where you are because it's hurting the planet after the fact that we've already emitted so i really love how he like said that it's really unethical to say that but we need to figure out how to make this how to make economic growth you know coexist with uh, decarbonization and and green growth so i i really like how he didn't make it about individuals um or like you know blame basically because that is something that i feel like isn't a lot of books for the general population um about climate is like how you can do better but it's it's really how like we need to advocate for governments and and people with money to do better I totally agree i'm so glad you mentioned the emerging economies bit because that was 
a piece that I was really excited to read because I feel like whenever, maybe I'm sure that you come across this too, and anyone who advocates for climate action probably comes across this, but whenever you're talking about emissions reductions, there's always someone that's like, what about China? I'm like, listen up. It's not about China right now. Let's talk about us. And there's always someone who's ready to fight about China. And I'm like, this is seriously not the conversation to have. And so in the book, when uh, when Bill Gates was talking about emerging economies, I got really excited about the conversation around growth being possible in a more eco-conscious way. I don't know if eco-conscious is even the word to use here, but in in a more ethical, sustainable way. And yeah. I thought that was cool because at the beginning of the book, he said the thing that really got him interested in climate action and um, and the urgency around climate solutions was energy poverty, which got me so excited mm-hmm. to talk about because I don't think that's something that we talk yeah. about enough in the climate crisis. No. Saying that like he oh, for was, sure. um, I don't remember what country he was in, but he said like, I looked out and there were no lights and I just realized yeah. none of these people have power. And yeah, it sounds like such a humbling moment, I guess, like to realize that mm-hmm. you are such a small privileged part of a community. And mm-hmm. it got me really excited that he was so upfront about energy poverty and like that being a motivation and being able to say, if we're going to actually improve the quality of life in other countries, if we're talking about global health, it needs to be a climate conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how like eradicating energy poverty is so essential to, you know, providing education to more people and basically uplifting people. Um, and especially with emergent economies and quote unquote, like developing countries in, in the global South, like it maybe is like counterintuitive, but we need like more energy, like more electricity to, to be available to more people because like there is no way, I mean, the amount of energy that we use, and I think it was really helpful that he like basically kind of did an analysis of like what, how much energy and electricity like a home needs versus like a city, like just to power like this, this conversation and like any research we do and like, like everything is, is a lot, you know, and that can't just be something that is focused or, or exclusive to certain nations because that's what keeps the divide. And, and income inequality and, and everything like that. So I really appreciated that bit and like just putting that into perspective. I agree. I totally agree. On the flip side, something that I wish he had talked about more was efficiency. And there was this mm. push to say we need, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong and if I like really skimmed over this bit, but there was a lot of conversation around replacing the energy sources that we currently have. But I mm-hmm. I like to advocate for efficiency because it's not very sexy, but it's the most... Mm-hmm effective way that we can really reduce emissions. It's not about replacing Mm -hmm. every energy source or expanding Mm -hmm. energy across the world. It's about using less where you can. And it's, yeah, it's, it's not like a sexy thing to talk about efficiency. It's, you want to talk about carbon capture and you want to talk about big time wind turbines and how are we going to improve batteries for solar panels and all of this fun and exciting technology but yeah, we need to talk about efficiency. So I wish that there had been more of a, right. of a heavier focus on that. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for basically like reducing the green premiums of more environmentally friendly sources of energy through um, incentivizing a reduction in usage, especially for people who in, in like Western countries who 
there's really no problem with a lack of energy or, or electricity. Um, and I do know that he talked about how for like low income American families, I think it's a 10% of their income they spent on um, electricity, which is significantly more than obviously high, higher income or um, like just the average American household, which was really interesting because that's like a lot. 10% is a, a huge portion of that. So I do wish there was more, more to be said about, especially uh, what can be done to reduce that burden and also incentivize uh, people in higher income households to reduce their usage. I could not agree more. I think that there needs to be more of a conversation about like, even within America, what do we do about these socioeconomic divides that still exist and the energy poverty that exists in America still. And it also just got me thinking a lot about justice, which was what I was so excited to talk to you about environmental justice, because I know that you are like the environmental justice champion of the internet. And I'm so excited to talk to you about this. (laughs) Um, But I, I wanted to hear about if there was a glaring issue with this book that you were like, why didn't he talk about this particular topic? I guess from the get-go, it was really just the lack of acknowledgement of like indigenous wisdom and in the ways that uh, indigenous communities have been living with the land and tending to it and doing, you know, like basically knowing how to live, live sustainably with what they have and with the land and the amount of attention that like, I know that the um, agriculture or agroeconomist that won the Nobel Prize, he, because uh, creating that strain of wheat that was a lot more efficient and like yielded a lot more food than um, traditional strains of wheat got a lot of praise from him. Um, But I didn't see like in that chapter about basically agriculture, really anything about indigenous ways of harvesting food, which was super weird to me because, I mean, we know that 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 is one of the most sustainable ways of, you know, harvesting food, and that has been working for communities for so long. So I thought that was really strange. I also don't think that there was enough attention to the disparities in climate change and, and basically how it's, I, he did mention several times it's going to hurt the poorest people the most and first, but not exactly how, especially, you know, since a lot of the book was U.S. focused, I feel like the, when he talked about how it's going to hurt the poorest people the most, he really just focused on like fishermen in Bangladesh and didn't really talk about like environmental injustices in the States. And that, you know, because this book is written for the general public, that could be harmful because a lot of the general public doesn't know about climate injustices in the United States. And it's people probably think of it more as like a global thing. Oh, you know, those people who are already in low low income countries are going to suffer first. But it's also like people in high income countries in the United States are already suffering and have intergenerational trauma because of pollution or like housing and you know so I think that that was something that he really glossed over and then yeah again just like lifting up or even bringing attention to indigenous ways of interacting with the land 
was kind of astonishing because that's definitely something I'm, you know, I feel like people have learned a lot more about in the past year. Um, and I mean, like amazing books like Braiding Sweetgrass have really kind of drawn attention to it. So I, I am surprised that he hadn't mentioned it very much. I agree. I agree. And as a side note, I have to add Braiding Sweetgrass to the list of book club picks because I'm excited to read that. I feel like everyone but me has read it and I'm so excited to read it. But I agree that there was an interesting gloss over of environmental injustices in America. And when I initially think of intergenerational trauma around, uh, around environmental injustices in America, I think of the classic AOC example of children in the South Bronx being born with astonishing levels of asthma. And I think that's one that always sticks with me. Maybe it's just because it sounds so, so clear. You're like, there are higher levels of pollution there. And for that reason, we have higher levels of asthma. And that's a very like clear cut example in my head. And on the flip side, when we talk about the poorest communities first being affected by climate change compared to others, I always think of Hurricane Maria. I think of Puerto Rico who didn't have power for a year, et cetera, for so long. And where were these people going to go? What were we going to do with the hospitals? What, you know, and when I say we, it's like the world did not step up as a whole. And the people of an island nation are constantly being faced with the threats of sea level rise, of stronger storms, of lack of resources, of what do you do about power Mm -hmm. lines? What do you do about uh, getting food to the island? So I feel like that's also a really clear cut example for a lot of people when we think of the impacts of climate change. I think that was the first time that the general public really started talking heavily about it. And I appreciate that. But I just like, I needed more. I needed more from Bill Gates to say, this is happening now and here X, Y, and Z are the examples. And he gave a lot of examples of like great technologies, you know, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. great, like exciting things coming up. But I just needed, I needed a human aspect to the climate crisis. Yeah, for sure. Especially because so much of it was US focused and so little of the attention to climate injustice was at all centered on US. And again, so many people don't really within the general public don't really know about that. Yeah, like what you were saying about like AOC's example with asthma, like that's a very, I mean, that's directly tied to public health as well. So, you know, something it's surprising that he didn't really bring up any of these environmental injustices that are tied to public health since that's his his area of expertise. I agree. And I feel like even more in his area of expertise, like there definitely could have been more of an example with malaria. Why are, uh, why are mosquitoes able to travel for so much longer and live longer? And, you know, Mm -hmm. there, there, there was a lot of opportunity, I think for him to bring in the human aspect and the public health aspect. And I just didn't see it. And I wanted also some more about water. I'm just, I'm thinking a lot Mm -hmm. about water lately. I think a lot about groundwater Mm -hmm. and like things that leak into the groundwater. I think a lot about, uh, EPA standards and these are like the things that keep me up at night and they totally should not be, (laughs) but I just, I needed more about, I guess, day-to-day resources, which was not the point Uh of the book. It was about the climate crisis in general and the climate crisis for the general public. But I think that there's also this disconnect for a lot of people still in the general public that even if you're consuming this book, you're like, wow, we really have to do something about it, but it's still a siloed conversation. It's a conversation that doesn't happen in every facet of your life. You talk about climate change and then you move on to talk about something else. And that's mm-hmm. not how it should be. It should be a really intersectional topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I think it was also, I was surprised um, at the omission of, well, one, he was talking a good amount about COVID and like the economic impacts of it and versus the, you know, projected economic impacts of not, you know, attending to the climate crisis. But he didn't talk about pandemics are going to be accelerated, you know, by climate change um, in, you know, the coming years and how our basically interaction with the land and with creatures that carry like xenopic diseases is the direct cause of COVID. And so that was interesting and exactly what you were saying about like the vector borne diseases and how because of rising temperatures that is going to become a more severe problem for parts of the globe that haven't really experienced that before. I also think the omission of uh, conversation around green jobs and how those those have the potential to lift people out of poverty, but also um, facilitate the green transition was was surprising. I agree. I think that green jobs is a really hot topic that we could have talked more about because especially around the presidential election, there was so much talk about green jobs in the debates, but then there was also so much talk online of like, what even is a green job? What does that mean for people? And there's also this sense that the climate deniers that still exist in America, those climate denying communities, uh, a lot of the time we associate with coal communities. And okay, how do we how do we revitalize this community in West Virginia or wherever it is that we are like really feeling like there needs to be a push for revitalization? And the answer a lot of time is job training, green job training. How do we put solar panels up, wind turbines? Who who are the technicians, etc. And those conversations occasionally exist in economic spaces for the general public, like that presidential election debate. But it's, I mean, I don't think people realize how powerful that could be to really actively shift our economy to be a green economy. Like this could provide millions of jobs. This could provide a serious economic growth to a lot of areas that have not seen any sort of significant prosperity in a long time. Like green jobs would I mean, frankly, change the world. If the if America yeah. got behind like active green job training, it would be mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah, for sure. And I think in Paris, he was trying to stay like apolitical. He basically was like referencing the challenges to climate policy in America, and that there's you know a new administration every four years, and the priorities change, and especially over the last eight years, that's been like really massive and glaring. But I think because of his stature and and position and the reverence people have for him had a unique positionality to basically say like, okay, you know, 97% of scientists believe that anthropogenic emissions are causing climate change. There are opportunities for economic growth that coexist with taking climate action. Politicians on both sides of the aisle need to recognize this and work to create green jobs that don't neglect people, like you were saying, um, who have been working in coal factories for so many years. You know, there, there's ways to facilitate this transition that doesn't leave people behind. It would have been really valuable for him to say that instead of just really saying that, oh yeah, it's like hard because policy is really in flux with the administration and their goals, because it is political, you know, like this is objectively a political issue and it has to be. And like the only way he he mentioned like how difficult it is like on a global scale as well for climate policy and how the Paris Climate Agreement was so uh, significant because it 
even though even though it has no like, actual consequences if countries have failed to comply with it it represented some sort of consensus so you know i think the idea of establishing that consensus is 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 important as he noted but it it probably should have been given more attention again especially since there will be like people who identify as conservatives reading this book more so than i think the average like climate book I could agree. I absolutely agree. I'm frustrated when people don't get political about the climate conversation. And I think for me, even just in my day-to-day personal life, if someone tells me they're not political, that's a deal breaker. Like, I'm sorry, that's it. But, Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the climate crisis, it shouldn't be political in the sense that it's a crisis that everyone needs to get behind the solutions and we all need to move forward on this. But if you're saying well, you know, it's kind of hard to do anything about it. And this is a book about solutions and solving the crisis. Don't tell me that it's hard. Tell me how it's going to get done and tell me why we need to elect more people to get it done. And there was definitely a reference to that. And when it comes to personal choice and um, individual opportunities, because a lot of the time when people read about the climate crisis or hear these really stark statistics, it's so easy to just say, oh my God, what can I do? And it's frustrating to be the person to say like, honestly, nothing. It's not about you. It's There's a bigger issue here. And what you can do is vote for people that are going to enact a green premium or going to really push for these green job training programs. Or, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not always about the individual. Individual actions are certainly important. And that's not what I mean. Like sustainability day to day, it has to be an individual thing. But when it comes to solving the climate crisis, we have to recognize that it's really a huge societal shift that we're advocating for. So I've got a lot of thoughts on like why it's political, but also like why it shouldn't be political, I guess. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I have been kind of reading and researching about how it used to not be political and both sides of the aisle were behind climate action and, and saw the economic opportunities as well to take action. Um, but then how it became politicized and now it's just like so so politicized to the point where it's really hindering our ability to make effective policy that can actually make a change so we're stuck in this spot where like there's people like us who are you know you know know that systems change is the only way to go but like people aren't recognizing this urgency because of the way that it's been politicized um even though again it shouldn't be because it affects everyone and it has already affected so many people and is going to only continue to hurt people. Right. Totally agree. I mean, it's so unfortunate to say it that way. I wanted to ask you on the flip side, completely different switching gears. I want to ask you about geoengineering and how you feel about these technologies that Bill Gates is advocating for, because some people get really fired up about it. And some people are like, absolutely not engaging with that conversation. I think that alone geoengineering is a very myopic and really just profit financial driven uh, venture. I think it needs, I, I, again, I really didn't like how he mentioned that at, at, ad nauseum, but didn't mention like regenerative agriculture, indigenous interactions with land and and those things. But I do think that there is a place, especially for people who are investors or have a lot of money to engage with geoengineering practices um, and innovations. 
I didn't know that much about direct air capture. Um, and I think the, the way that he defined it basically and, and the costs of it was really, really fascinating. I know it's like super inefficient and there's only one place, I think in Switzerland that has the facility and a capability to do that. But I thought it was very interesting, like how he set that up and how, you know, it could be that it has a potential if, if scalable to like be immensely valuable and how the costs of doing so in the long run would be far less than the cost of not implementing anything else. But I think there are far more solutions available to us that uh, should be tapped into first. And so, yeah, I guess, I guess in short, I think that geoengineering is essential because it attracts a lot of investment and uh, a lot of attention. But I think alone, it can't be pursued. I think it needs to be in conjunction with policy change, investment in R&D, like individual action and, and political mobilization. I appreciate you sharing that because I'm actually like very anti-geoengineering. I hate talking about direct air capture. And when someone brings that up as a viable climate solution, I get upset. I'm like, this is not, you know, the Elon Musk show over here. Like I get really frustrated by conversations about direct air capture because it is so inaccessible. And a lot of the direct air capture projects that are even in theory in America don't have the research behind them yet. Like they're very R and D they have a lot more innovation to do before it's like a viable, scalable solution. So I got really frustrated around direct air capture conversations and I did not like that he gave it so much attention. I mean, but I like your perspective that the important part about geoengineering is that it attracts investors And I think that's great. But on the flip side, I also get really frustrated with the fact that geoengineering, direct air capture is a great example, but a lot of the time it's also things like bubbling the ocean. So you increase the albedo and reflect back more sunlight. And a lot of these things are so fantasy driven. Like it just, it just sounds, it sounds ridiculous, right? Frankly, it sounds, a lot of people will also advocate for when I was in school a few years ago there was a big push for some reason for uh, people who were sending like mirrors into space, people, scientists, like mirrors into space to reflect back sunlight. And there's, there's huge amounts of funding going towards these very fantastical climate solutions. And that funding could go elsewhere, but you're right in saying like it attracts investors and at least people are getting on board with something in the sense of climate solutions. But generally speaking, I hate talking about geoengineering. Yeah, no, that's super valid. And I think if I actually like looked into the numbers and how much um, money is given towards R&D that is solely focused on geoengineering, I'd be a lot more like critical because like you said, there is so much attention and funding that could be given towards things that are proven to have an immediate impact rather than things that are very hypothetical and tech oriented. If I, if I looked into the numbers about how much is invested in these kind of far off technologies that are like sexy to investors, um, I'll be a lot more cynical of geoengineering. But I think I'm, I'm not sure if I'm defining it right, but I'm also thinking about like how you can uh, like kind of some more bioengineering, but like crops to increase the yield. I don't know if that falls under geoengineering or if geoengineering is like solely how you can like interact with the earth through technology to improve carbon drawdown efforts? 
Yeah, I think that you're right. I think that geoengineering is more focused on your interaction with the earth. And then bioengineering is things like increasing crop yields. And um, I'm totally on board with that, like new strains of rice that we could grow in higher levels of, you know, water temperature, whatever it is. So I think that's totally necessary. I thought also, I mean, speaking of bioengineering and crops and farming, I love to talk about food in conjunction with the climate crisis. And I wish that there had been more of a conversation around. I feel like I'm adding a lot of chapters to this book that like, there's a reason that Bill Gates left them out. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that people also have this sense that there's, for some reason, there's still this like lingering belief that overpopulation is Mm. the main uh, thing holding us back from solving the climate crisis which is absolutely false and unethical. And there's just so many reasons that's wrong. But there's also this sense that the reason that there are so many people living in food poverty is because of access and the technologies that exist to get food from one place to another. It's not that we're not producing enough food. It's that the food is not getting to where it needs to go. And there's this sense also of like global trade and you know the global economy and how are we moving things from one country to another and if we're really talking about solving energy poverty somewhere what does that access look like what what does that transmission look like globally and this sense that while it is a very us focused book it has to be such a global movement. And there are a lot of countries doing a great job, but if we're really talking about like uplifting people and improving the quality of life, we got to talk about food and access. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I was just, you know, reviewing some things that I highlighted, but he talked a little bit about like the vegan argument. And I mean, I am a huge proponent of veganism for the environment. I think it was interesting that he was basically saying like it's not realistic when I I don't think I mean there are some vegans who are like all or nothing but I don't think we don't need to make an all or nothing change to plant-based diets for us to have a significant impact on the environment it's really just about divesting where you can from industries that are disproportionately impacting the planet in an in a negative way so like cattle and he he was very he said like meat plays too important a role in human culture like it's a crucial part of festivals and celebrations like like yes it could still be a crucial part of festivals and celebrations without you know the usda advocating for like a fourth of our plate for every meal to be meat you know what i'm saying oh absolutely absolutely i think that there's a lot of arguments to be made for I call it part-time veganism, like this sense that like you do it all the time. And every once in a while, if you're going to like participate in a festival or celebration, go ahead and let yourself do it. And people get very upset about that term. And I know it's controversial because it's like veganism means usually all or nothing and part-time veganism should be called plant-based. But I think saying part-time, it gives people this sense that you, you can pick and choose when you do it. And if you're going to do it all or nothing, that's great, but you certainly don't have to. And I think that's also really intimidating. Like I'm sure you get questions all the time of like, oh, I want to go vegan, but I just... I love bacon so much or whatever it is. And it's like, okay, fine. Like enjoy it and cut it out, you know, cut out everything else, do what you can and move forward. And I really appreciated that. Like, I like, I like advocating for that because I don't think that a lot of people see it that way. And even though vegan choices are becoming more and more available and we see more and more people like opting for 
plant-based ice cream or oat milk or whatever it is. It's great that it's delicious and it's like clearly the best option for the planet. But I think that people making those consumer choices don't see it as them like opting for the vegan option right now. A lot of it is like trendiness. And I think that's great. You know, like I really don't care that veganism is trendy because I don't care why you do it. I just appreciate that you do it. But there's this sense that like, if you're gonna do it, you have to like go all in. And I think that's really unrealistic for a lot of people. I hate to say it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Especially if you're doing it for environmental reasons. I get like the, if you're doing it for, you know, predominantly like animal rights, but I like, as of very recently, um, I have like become okay with saying this because I used to feel really guilty, but like if there's like baked goods that are already purchased and like they're going to go to waste like and they definitely have like eggs or milk whatever and I'm like I will eat that like (laughs) it's better in my opinion for environmental reasons to uh reduce food waste that has already you know that is going to be created by something that has already been purchased than to uh you know just allow that food waste because you don't want to eat something with milk in it you know what I'm saying Oh, I totally agree. I used to have a lot of guilt around choices like that. If I'm going to like buy a baked good that isn't a vegan baked good, or yeah, if I'm somewhere that has no vegan options and I'm like buying into something that has an animal product in it, that's fine with me. But I had a lot of guilt about it for a long time to the point where it would, it would bug me for days if I like slipped up quote unquote. And now I'm at the point where I'm buying eggs, like for my house. I mean, for myself really, cause I'm the only one that lives here, but it just, me allowing myself to buy eggs was pretty crazy. And so I'm not a vegan. I'm a vegetarian if I'm buying eggs, but it doesn't really matter to me at this point. I'm like, you know what? I do what I can. And if I enjoy it and like, I need a little bit of protein, whatever, I'm going to have an egg. But me getting over that hump of like the guilt and the self-doubt of like, am I a good enough environmentalist? That was a really hard personal challenge. I totally agree. And I think, I mean, it seems like, I know he prefaced the how we grow things chapter by talking about how he eats like hamburgers a lot less. Um, I think, you know, which is good. I think that we should endorse the term plant-based because, you know, that implies that we're getting a majority of our calories from plant sources. And so I think that maybe, I mean, I don't want to like get caught up in semantics, but I think maybe promoting, you know, like plant-based living versus veganism is, is less intimidating to people. You know, there has been studies proving that as an individual, the most impactful thing that you can do, assuming that you're not like flying on a plane several times a year is to cut out meat and dairy products. So, you know, incentivizing people to do that and, and showing them that it's very possible and it doesn't have to be like all or nothing doesn't mean you can never eat bacon again. Like go forward, just try not to buy it every time you go to the grocery store is, is really important. And I, I think it's, I think it's very, a very realistic solution that can happen now, you know? Yeah. And I think the realistic term is important too, because again, a book written for the general public has to make sense for a lot of people. And I think plant-based living, like you mentioned, is really something that people can pick and choose and build into their life already. And it doesn't have to be this whole like lifestyle shift, but harping on this word, realistic, harping on this idea of like a book written for the public, 
I would love to wrap up hearing your thoughts on the overall book in general. If you had to rate this book on Goodreads, what would you give it out of five? I would say as, I don't know, I don't want to give it two different scores, but I feel like I should rate it like as someone in this space. And then also just like as a general member of society for general members of society, I would honestly say four. I really, I thought it was super digestible. There was, I mean, even from uh, him explaining how like kilowatts work and, and, and how to assess your mm-hmm. electricity usage on what it says on the bill, because most people kind of gloss over that. I thought that was really accessible and there. And there's, you know, action items and summary points that I think are really, really powerful and, and useful. Um, as someone in this space, I think there was a lot. I mean, he can't write a book on on that's completely comprehensive, of course, on, on this issue. But I think the omission of indigenous living um, and kind of the preference for technologies over uh, sustainable ways of living that people have been engaging in forever would probably make it like a 2.5. I think even mentioning it throughout the chapters would have been would have been really powerful. Um, and then also the omission of like environmental justice issues as not just a global South thing, but also like a thing that's happening right now in our country would, would give it a three. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. That's a very fair answer. So I guess okay, you said the idea. average is about a three and a half. I would say honestly, a four out of five, I actually really enjoyed okay. it. I really appreciated that there was a conclusion because yeah. I think a lot of the time with climate books, they tell you about the crisis and they're like, all right, here's what we're looking forward to. But there is no conclusion. There's no happy mm-hmm. ending, so to speak. And not that there always has to be, but I want to feel like I wrapped up that learning experience. Like I want an end mm-hmm. to the lesson. And so I actually really enjoyed that. And I really liked all the charts. I really liked the, mm-hmm. the graphics. I thought it was really digestible yeah. too. There was definitely a lot that was omitted, but like you said, there's no way that he could have written a truly comprehensive, you know, encyclopedia of climate change. And Mm -hmm. I also really liked his humility. Like he checked himself a few times and he was like, I understand that I am like a privileged billionaire white man living in America. I get it. I should not Mm -hmm. be at one point. I think he even said like, I don't think I should be the person writing this book. I think he said that in the, in the forward and in the very beginning. And he was saying like, but I understand this. I've dedicated a lot of my time to learning about this. I'm interested in it. Here are the basics for everyone. And Mm -hmm. I think that the humility aspect is really important too, especially because Mm -hmm. there has been all these conversations online of like, should this billionaire actually be writing a book about climate change? Do billionaires have a place in this climate conversation? Mm -hmm. And it seems really unfair for me to say he has no place to write this because he totally does. I mean, he's an educated guy. He knows what he's talking about. He's Mm -hmm. investing in these things. Um, There was a couple of moments where he was like, you know, in 2019, I stopped investing in fossil fuel cup or like something, something very basic to environmental action at this point, but him checking himself in recent years, I thought was also really honest. I thought it was a really good way to write the book. And of course there were kind of moments that I was like only 2019, my God, like get it together. Let's go. But then I was also Mm -hmm. like, thank God you did that. And like, thank you for being honest and thanks for being upfront. So I actually, I, I really liked it. I mean, and I feel, I feel guilty saying that. I feel like as someone no. in the climate space online, I mm-hmm. should be very anti 
how to avoid a climate disaster by Bill Gates, but I mean, I'm not, I really like it and I'm going to recommend it to people. Yeah, no, I'm definitely like, I told my dad, he would love to read this because I do think it's going to reach a lot more people and I'm excited to see like, I mean, I don't know how I would see this, but like the demographics of who it reaches and, and hopefully, you know, the people with the most power again, it's not right that they have the most power, but that's the situation at hand. Um, hopefully, it, you know, it reaches them and kind of compels them to invest in the change that is necessary to make, you know, the world a more livable place for everybody. I too feel like wrong for liking it and even like engaging with it. Cause a lot of my friends are just like, no, it's <laughs> like, I'm not going to read it. Like, there's no point. Like he's a billionaire. Like, who is he to say? I just think like you were saying, he has the resources to know a lot and he, he knows a lot. <laughs> um, and it hasn't been like a firsthand account. He hasn't been doing the research, but he has like, he, he mentioned so many interviews and discussions he's had with um, climate scientists and economists and farmers too, you know, that testify to uh, the research that in the, in the making of this book. So uh, I think that there's a lot of value that is undermined by our immediate dismissal of him just because he's a billionaire and again regardless of whether or not we think billionaires should exist like they do so like <laughs> what some of them are doing and paying, paying attention to that is far more impactful than just dismissing them entirely and saying well I'm not gonna listen to anything because they have a very strong voice so what they're doing with that voice is is very powerful I appreciate that. Yeah. Excellent conclusion. And I have to say, Zara, I am so thankful that you are willing to read this with me again, because it was such a controversial pick online. So I really appreciate your willingness to read this with an open mind. I think that clearly both of us went into this, like, again, ready to fight. Like we were like, what's going on here, but yeah, being open-minded, really digesting it. It's a book that I recommend. I really like it. And I'm so, so glad that we had this talk. And I'm so glad that also, not that I want to agree with you on everything, of course, because like, what kind of friendship is that? But I want to, I feel a little bit more validated in my appreciation for the book by knowing that I'm not the only one that feels this way. And this kind of Mm -hmm. conflict of enjoying it. Same. And I love that both of us have studied this in school. So, you know, have had a lot of like experience engaging with readings around the climate and climate science, climate policy. So this is like uh, an addition to, to all that, that we have had the privilege of studying and it's valuable to engage with this and, and see how it differs from what we have read. And I just love how practical a lot of the things were and again, how accessible the, the information was. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Oh my God. Okay. This makes (laughs) me feel so good. Zara, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for chatting and reading the book so thoroughly and just like being able to have this kind of very robust conversation. I think that we covered a lot of ground and I'm excited. Thank you so much for joining me for book club. Thank you, Laura. I'm so excited. I love the podcast and the book club series. I'm excited for the next fiction one. What's it? What's yeah. the name of it again? The next book is called Migrations by Charlotte McConney. And I'm excited to read that one because it is, it's a fiction book and we haven't read a fiction book yet, but it is 
a book that was on every single like best of 2020 list that I found for fiction books. Wow. And it happens okay. to be like a climate fiction book about a researcher that follows, um, I believe it's like a species of birds in Greenland. I haven't read it yet. I'm waiting for my copy in the mail, but I'm really excited. I think it's going to be really, really good. Yeah, that it sounds amazing. And I always grapple with like, I need to be reading more fiction because I want like more, because I'm so attracted to books about like crises and, and how yeah. to fix them. And I'm like, I need, I need to chill for a sec. So I'm excited to read that along with y'all. Yeah. Well, I'm the same way. I like never read fiction books. I picked up a fiction book for the first time, maybe like three months ago and I breezed through it. I was like, I forgot how much fun this yeah. could be. And now right? I am like, I am breezing through fiction books. I'm loving it. And once I allowed myself, quote unquote, to like start reading fiction books again, I was like, life is good. Like I'm, Seriously. I need some sort of like escape from the climate crisis emotionally. And mm -hmm. this is how I'm going to do it. I feel that so hard. Yeah. Justice for fiction books because they got a bad yeah, rap sure. and we need to, we need to read more of them. So I'm excited about They're next really one good. again. Thank you so much for joining me again. This has been good. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.